Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Mann. Dr. Mann is a clinical psychologist and Air Force veteran. His clinical practice focuses on anxiety-related disorders, trauma, and insomnia. Before entering the field of psychology, he worked as a programmer and data analyst for a variety of corporations and currently works in private practice, offering telehealth services in California, Hawaii, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Outside of work, he is an avid surfer traveling all over the world to catch the perfect wave. Today, we talk about the tangled web of sleep and mental health, the connection between insomnia and mental illness. Welcome, Dr. Mann. Welcome. Awesome. Well, it's so great to see you, Josephine. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, it was nice to have you on. And I've been excited to talk about this topic because it's a topic that comes up quite a bit in my clinical work, and that is insomnia and the effects or the relationship that has with other mental illnesses. Yeah. And I think that's a great point, right? And when I really think about insomnia, it's... it's impossible to, to not talk about insomnia and any other mental health disorders, whether it's anxiety or PTSD or depression disorders or anything along those lines, right? Usually our sleep, it's going to either be secondary and we're going to have, it's going to be worse or sleep might actually be the originating problem, right? That is causing the depression, that is causing the anxiety. There's actually quite a bit of data to suggest that a lot of depressive conditions are actually secondary to insomnia rather than being the primary problem. And I think we just have a lot of bad information in the public sphere about what sleep is, about what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to treat it, and what's actually effective. Maybe what we could do is rewind a little bit and define insomnia, how that might look different. Because there's a a lot of different Which is a fantastic point, right? Because most people come in and say, I can't sleep, right? Which is a very dramatic statement. And understanding what insomnia is makes a big difference, right? Because people have a variety of sleep problems, insomnia just being one of them. So when we look at insomnia, it's predominantly a behaviorally induced condition. It results in difficulties either with sleep initiation, right, or sleep onset, falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, and potential early awakening as well, too. And the big thing about insomnia, it's not about the number of hours of sleep, right? It's about the quality of the sleep, as well as the daytime consequences that the individual experiences. Right. So it might look different for different people. It is. And this is why a really good assessment and evaluation becomes a critical part of the treatment process. The way insomnia is for the individual is going to determine how the treatment goes, right? We're going to target a variety of different things, depending on whether there's more arousal, whether there's more behavioral conditions, whether there's caffeine, whether there's substance use involved, right? In a variety of different ways. And so we really want to get the whole picture of what's going on for an individual in order to successfully treat them. The good news is insomnia is very, very treatable. It takes a little bit of work 
And I'd say for a clinician, the biggest asset that you can have in working with insomnia is creativity, because it's a lot of problem solving when you really get into it and helping people kind of address real issues in their lives from stress to bedroom environment to children to jobs, all that kind of stuff. And do you focus on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in your practice or? Yep. Cognitive behavioral therapy insomnia is, I would say it's a straightforward treatment process, but the devil is in the details. How do you implement it? How do you get somebody on board with it? How do you help them understand it? And I really think actually the biggest part of insomnia treatment, good cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia involves a lot of education. Because if people don't understand what you're asking them to do, why you're asking them to do it, the likelihood of them following through with it is very, very low. And so you're helping them in many ways learn to sleep for life. Because once you go through this process, you have the tools, the skills, and the techniques to actually do this, not just now in this moment, but anytime you experience sleep problems in the future. You bring up a good point because when I mention CBTI to my patients as a potential option, oftentimes people are like, oh, I know all that stuff already. Yep, always. And usually what they've done is they've tried sleep hygiene. So sleep hygiene is making the bedroom environment comfortable, managing light, managing devices. For whatever reason, everybody got it in there in their head. And I think there was some initial research that came out about this is like, oh, the light to your eyes, that's what's keeping you awake. And and they've done some subsequent research and the number of lumens that you get from a TV or a computer screen or anything compared to the lumens that you get from daylight, it's just incomparable, right? And so the likelihood that the light from the screen is going to be the problem is actually like really not the case. It's more of the arousal from the screen time that's going to be the issue more than anything else in that process. So there's a few directions we can go, but I think what we had wanted to kind of talk about is specifically that intersection of Mm -hmm. insomnia and depression, insomnia and anxiety, insomnia and suicidal ideation. Yeah. Talking a little bit about like what comes first, right? Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about insomnia and depression, right? And really think about the day in the life of an individual with pretty severe depression. In many ways, they're often pretty sedentary, right? They're avoiding a lot of activity. Oftentimes they might use sleep as a way to escape from depressed mood. They might be lying in bed for extended periods of time in the middle of the night into the morning, also lying in bed for extended periods of time into the weekend, right? And so there's a lot of this decreased activity level that is really totally throwing off kind of their homeostatic balance and their circadian rhythm, right? And so it kind of ends up all over the place. And so you end up with this depressed individual. And when we're depressed, and we don't have a lot of energy, what's the natural thing that we want to do, right? Oh, well, we can serve energy. Well, that's actually the worst thing that we can do for sleep problems, right? It starts to tell our body that, nope, we don't need additional energy. We're fine the way things are. As a matter of fact, we have more energy than we need for the level of activity that we have. And so for that depressed individual, it's very paradoxical, right? Of telling them, you actually need to be more active when you're feeling tired and really kind of setting more firm schedules, right? Of when they get up, what they do during the day, when they exercise. And again, it might not necessarily alleviate their depression, but it will dramatically help with their sleep along with classic cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. 
And so really understanding like, yeah, that's a big part of individual depression is that their depression is making their sleep problems worse and vice versa. So it really becomes that vicious cycle more than anything else. So I do understand this idea in the sense that depression would lead to worsening insomnia, mm-hmm. right? What I think the listener might find interesting, this idea of like how insomnia can lead to worsening depression. Yep. So when we think about what happens when you have poor sleep, right, is your body has to compensate in a variety of different ways, right? Through adrenaline, through increased alerting activity, right? And so you don't have kind of this natural level of energy that you'd normally get from sleep. Also, your cognitive processing is going to be bad for lack of a better term, right? You're going to be much more prone to the depressive thoughts. Your emotional stability is going to be significantly changed, right? In that situation. And if you just think about times where you've had difficulty sleeping, right? The littlest thing can set you off an email, a difficult interaction with somebody, right? And so for that individual who is already having some depressed mood and now they're not sleeping, every little thing is going to exacerbate and that depressive lens is going to be magnifying every little thing that's going on there. Their capacity to cope with things when they're not sleeping well is diminished. Yeah. It makes me think about this idea when you sleep, it helps you emotionally digest things. And if you don't have that restful sleep and you're not sleeping well, like you don't have that opportunity to really chew on it and really help it dissipate a little bit. Yeah, there's that. And it's just the fact that your cognition, you are impaired when you're not sleeping, right? And so again, I think a big part of that is that emotional instability that we experience when we're not sleeping. And that's going to really affect everything, right? So if you're an anxious person, right, your anxiety is going to go through the roof. If you're a depressed person, your depression is going to be significantly worse because your emotional stability, your capacity to cope with problems is just biologically off when you're not sleeping well. Right. Well, maybe that brings us into this discussion about anxiety and insomnia. So yes, it makes a lot of sense. You're worried, you're anxious, you can't get yourself to this calm state that would allow you to fall asleep. Yeah. And one of the things that anxious individuals do, right, is they get very focused on needing sleep. They recognize the need for sleep. One of the most important concepts that we work on in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is addressing sleep effort. So sleep effort is the attempts that we make to force ourselves to fall asleep, right? And the anxious person is terrible at this. They are constantly trying to do things to induce sleep. And the paradox is what we're trying to do is actually reduce sleep effort and actually eliminate sleep effort. And so the anxious person, they're doing this, they're getting their tea, they're setting their bedroom just right, they're getting their alarm clock and they're they're getting all ready so they can have the perfect night's sleep, right? And then if any little thing goes wrong, they start thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to sleep. Tomorrow's going to be terrible. The catastrophic mind starts going and going and going and going, right? And so that's really where I think the anxiety really makes the sleep problem worse. And again, that cycle starts to kick in is, and then in the morning, they already start having those catastrophic thoughts. Oh my God, I didn't sleep. Today's going to be awful. I have this. How am I going to handle that? Right. You get a a huge amount of on that catastrophic thinking uh, more than anything else, right. With the anxious individual with regards to their sleep. And again, similar to depression, 
their cognitive capacity is now impaired, right? If they're prone to the anxiety, they're going to be dealing with it more, right? In a variety of different ways. And ironically, I think mindfulness for those individuals becomes really important, but not in the way you think. It's not around bedtime. I actually, when I work with individuals, we work on mindfulness just during the day, basic practice, because what we're trying to get them to do is have something eventually they can go to when they're trying to sleep and their mind wants to be like, hey, let's think about all those problems that we have. And so it's not so much that they're using mindfulness activities. I actually work with them to create some sort of imagined scenario that they find relatively pleasant. It could be a round of golf. It could be a cruise. It could be something. And they kind of walk themselves through it and step into this imaginary world when they kind of go to sleep. Because if we tell them not to think about their problems when they go to sleep, it just doesn't work. Right. And the reason that I use mindfulness as an entree to that, because we're training the skill of developing the capacity to choose what you think about rather than having your mind run amok, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I was going to ask about actually mindfulness and how that would relate to helping push out thoughts mm-hmm. that are anxious or counterproductive to falling asleep. Yep, very much so. You don't want to use meditation as your way to fall asleep necessarily. There's nothing terribly wrong with it. But we kind of want to reserve some of the mindfulness activities, right, for that awake period. But what you're really taking from mindfulness is the capacity to choose what you're thinking about, to choose what your mind focuses on. And then you apply that at that time when you're trying to go to bed, right? So that way you're not necessarily like contaminating the mindfulness activity. Because what I see oftentimes is people get really frustrated. They didn't fall asleep. And they're like, ah, this mindfulness is garbage. And so that's why we really try and work on it outside of the context of sleep, get a little bit of efficacy and then interesting. And then it's like building a muscle. It is. You're exactly right. It's just like building a muscle. Okay. And also the thing to mention about the anxiety and insomnia is that if you have an anxious person who doesn't sleep one night, then they're worried all day about the effects it's going to have on them. And then they're anticipatory anxiety about that night is just getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And and one of the really important things to kind of recognize is there's a cycle that just about everybody goes through is that it's about three or four days because what we know is that your body can only go so long without sleep before biology is going to take over. And typically what you see with individuals is they go three or four days, really bad sleep, and then their sleep deprivation gets severe enough where they crash for one night. And then the cycle starts all over again. But this is oftentimes where they start to attribute things like melatonin or taking a Tylenol or a vitamin or drink because it gets so bad. They're like, oh my God, I need to do this. And then they have a decent night's sleep at that point. There's probably a placebo effect in there as well too. But then they say, oh, I did X, Y, and Z and that made me sleep. But it's really, it's just a cycle that people with insomnia pretty much go through is they go about three or four days before the severity of the sleep deprivation kicks in, they get a good night's sleep, and then the cycle starts over. Yeah. Well, let's move on to suicidal thinking. Sure. So when it comes to insomnia and suicide, one of the important things to know is that the research really shows that insomnia predicts suicidal thought and suicidal behavior better than depressive symptoms. And it really kind of makes sense when you think about it. One, like we talked about, there's just that capacity to deal with problems is severely impaired, right? When you're experiencing chronic insomnia. So everything feels overwhelming. Two, you're kind of up a lot, 
thinking about stuff. And so when individuals are in that space, we know that suicidal rumination tends to occur in the evening. This is when people are experiencing. And oftentimes suicidal thought is really characterized by kind of hopeless, helpless thinking. And so there is this notion of, I can't sleep. I can't solve my problems. This is going on forever. I can't live like this anymore. And when there's that suicidal thought as well, the access to means in that moment, that becomes a real opportunity for risk in that situation. And so it, it really is important for people who have sleep problems to do maybe a little bit more of an assessment on where is that suicidal thought? Is that present? Has that anything? You know, do they have any significant risk factors for it? You know, it doesn't change the intervention. But it's just one of those things, at least as providers and partners and spouses and everything that we need to be aware of is that individuals who are struggling with sleep, suicide is a risk for them and understanding that risk and trying to address it. Are there other connections? I mean, we talked about anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. What about PTSD? Yeah, I, that's a really good one. And what I really want to emphasize is that Sleep problems might be the thing that are associated with these disorders, but once insomnia kind of sets in, even if you address the anxiety, even if you address the depression, even if you address the PTSD, the insomnia is likely to still exist on its own, Mm -hmm. right? There's all sorts of reinforcing behaviors that we engage in over time that don't go away. And so even if the person is not depressed or their depression is much better or their anxiety is much better or that you've done some really good trauma-based work, then that insomnia is likely to persist in a variety of situations. And conversely, especially if you're an individual who maybe isn't sure about dealing with this depression thing or dealing with this anxiety thing or dealing with this trauma thing, if you just address the insomnia All of those things are going to be better. And I think it's a great way for people to start with psychotherapy, to try to address something, because if this treatment helps you in one area, well, maybe it can help you in some other areas as well too, right? And for individuals who are hesitant about it, it's a very safe way to look at things, right? People will very easily tell you about their sleep and tell you whether it's good or bad and those sorts of things. And you can really develop the skills and start working on making behavioral changes and changing the way that you think about a variety of different things. And those skills then are transferable to everything else that you do. So for me, it's a great way to get started. I think it's one of those things where we can either start with it if it's there. And even if people come to me without that being a primary concern, I always ask about it. It's one of the things I really want to know. And then even after you've done other treatment, making sure that that sleep thing is something that is not a problem. Yeah. I was also thinking as you were talking that we were kind of talking about and focusing so much on the comorbidities of insomnia Mm. with all these other diagnoses and issues that come up. But I will say though, there are sometimes, and I do have this occasionally in my practice, somebody with just primary insomnia. Yes. And there's a guy, Edinger, I think out of Duke University. It's interesting. Like that's what he researches. It's very rare. And sometimes I, I get that every now and again. I'd say well, once or twice a year, I get somebody come in, they've seen my information and they're just like, I just want to work on my insomnia and we'll do an assessment. It's like, they're right. It's just insomnia. And so for those individuals, I mean, yeah, talking about five, maybe six sessions, usually spread out over about you know a month and a half, I would say is typically what it is. But yeah, those are individuals who are rare but it's it's very treatable for them as well. And I guess in what context they usually seek you out. 
Because they're insomnia. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, not that it's causing them to be depressed or anxious or suicidal, but it's yep. like they would like to sleep. Yep. They just recognize that their sleep hasn't been very good and that something can be done about it. And one of the researchers, and I think I gave you the link for the book, Quiet Your Mind and Get to Sleep, is a fantastic book for anybody who wants to delve into this for themselves. It really walks them through. It's by Dr. Colleen Carney. Um, I did the, the training with her. She's fantastic, but she really focuses on this idea of comorbid insomnia. She recognized that most people, and I think that's like 75% of individuals have insomnia with something else. Mm -hmm. And so really taking that into account becomes really important, but it's a fantastic resource. Yeah. And I also think it's important that we highlight initially when you were talking about this idea that you have to look into what the causes are. So you have to mm -hmm. think about drug use. You have to think about medication someone's on. You have to think about their environment. Those things are important to think about as factors that are either causing or contributing to their ongoing issues with insomnia. Yeah. And it's also really important to make sure that we rule out other stuff that might be creating problems with sleep, right? Sleep apnea, you know, substance-induced sleep problems, you know, REM behavior disorders, circadian rhythm disorders. And this is why the assessment is really important because there are some pretty clear indicators of whether or not there might be something else going on and how the insomnia appears. Because if it's something like sleep apnea, the last thing you want to do is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, right? You want to get the sleep apnea treated appropriately. And there still might be some behavioral insomnia after that, but we'll deal with that later. we got to treat the sleep apnea first. Well, I'm so glad we have the opportunity to talk about this because I think people don't really think about the intersection between insomnia and all these other issues and kind of just the interrelatedness and interconnectedness of all of this. I will make sure that I have on the episode description your information. So if the listener is interested in learning more about you, that's easy for them to do. And you also gave us a lot of great resources for the listener to look at if they're interested in learning more. So I'll make sure we have those on. Before we go, I want to ask, is there any parting words you want to leave the listener with that might be really important take-home messages? Yeah, I think one, there's a lot that can be done for sleep. And so that if you're struggling with your sleep, reach out, right? Talk to somebody who is a specialist in working with sleep disorders, because there's so much that can be done. And the level of improvement that you can get in the quality of your life is really dramatic. I think that's one of the things that I love about this treatment is that you really see people's lives change when they're able to sleep better. And two, if you haven't worked with a specialist, but you've maybe tried a few of the different things, then keep an open mind, right? You may have not had the best type of implementation of what's going on. I will say for sleep treatment, it's one of those things that if it's not done correctly and if it's not done well, it tends not to work. And so people can get really frustrated very easily with maybe treatment that just wasn't quite implemented well. Maybe it was just kind of haphazard and, and a little rough shot, but keep an open mind and reach out to somebody who is really specializes in this type of work. Yeah, that's a great last comment. I must ask though, because I often ask people who do work with insomnia, do you follow hundred percent the recommendations you give to your clients? At times. Oh, okay. Well, that's yeah. great. And I would say like the way that I really bought into this is I did it for myself. Yeah. And I found that my sleep got dramatically better. And the biggest thing for me at the very least is I have a new relationship with the way that I sleep, right? If I get a bad night's sleep, or if I do something that I know is going to create a bad night's sleep, I accept it and I move on rather than kind of lamenting about it. And then I get back onto a normal schedule. again. Right. So definitely not a hundred percent, 
But my philosophy and everything that I do with treatment is that if it doesn't work at home, don't sell it at work. That's a good one. I like it. Well, thanks for being on. And I know who I'm going to call if I, I need some help with some sleep. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thanks so much, Josephine. It was really good right. chatting with you. Look forward to connecting in the future. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Bye. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.